Hi, this is Ben Zorns with Ellerslie Mission Society. This message was given at the Church of Ellerslie in lovely Windsor, Colorado. This message is certain to convict, inspire, and invigorate your pursuit of the Lord Jesus Christ. We also want you to know that should you ever have any questions or comments regarding any of the ministries here at Ellerslie, we are always happy to provide answers. Simply contact us at www.ellerslie.com. We really would love to hear from you. Enjoy the message and may your faith and love in Jesus grow larger as you listen. I know last week I dedicated the message, uh, it was called The Summer Spot, to my son Hudson. Uh, it's, I know it's, it would be improper to dedicate a message to my son two weeks in a row, so I won't officially do it. However, I want Hudson to know that I want him to listen closely. Uh, this, is, this is a message about purity. And one of the things since I've, Leslie and I have been on the front lines of dealing with the issues of sexuality and purity in the younger generation for many, many years. I mean, we're closing in on 20. And we have a lot of books on the subject. And I have dealt behind the scenes with a lot of leaders on the subject. And there's sort of an unspoken sense among most Christians today that young people will just be young people. And there's no way to properly fortify them to walk through their teen years unto adult years without being snagged by the typical things that all happen to each of us. And so as a result, as a father, I have a choice to make. Because I did make mistakes when I was growing up. So I could say, well, you know, like father, like son. Or I could fight. I could stand up and say, this is a new generation. And we have the truth of God's word. We have the merit of the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And though I did not appreciate it to its fullness when I was young, I want to see to it that my children do. So this is a message down that vein, along that line. However, I still, it's, it's a really hard thing to think of how do you impart these constructs to an eight-year-old, to a four-year-old? How do you do this? And yet, Whereas this message is going to be insufficient for that task, because it's going to be speaking to us as adults at the same time, I want Hudson to heed it. I want every young person in here to heed it, to listen to it, and to recognize the power that is made available to us in the cross work of Jesus Christ. So it's called a man or the man without mixture. So when you say the man without mixture, I know we could easily think of just an everyday guy, and he needs to be without mixture, which I'll go into what this means. However, the man that I'm referring to in this title is not just an everyday guy. It's the man, Jesus. And if you want to understand how purity works, you need to understand the man. You need to know the man. You need to be found in the man without mixture, because this man is without mixture. And when you are found in him, you are found in the mixtureless man. And then when you're found in him, you have the ability to come before the throne of grace to receive that mixtureless man inside of you to enable you to live a life that otherwise would be impossible. And this one that enters you is mixtureless. He is a man without mixture. So first, let's talk about the fact that we serve a God without mixture. The God revealed in the Bible is known as holy, holy, holy. Hagios, hagios, hagios. Without mixture, without mixture, without mixture. Set apart, set apart, set apart. Unlike the world, unlike the world, unlike the world. 
Whatever you've grown up around, he's not like it, he's not like it, he's not like it. The way you popped out of the womb with all that selfish, bent in flesh, he's not like it, he's not like it, he's not like it. He's a God without mixture, which is why we've been cut off from him, because we allowed mixture into our life. And there must be a solution for us, or we are forever separated from this God without mixture. Because if we have even the slightest tinge of mixture in our souls, then we are unlike him and unable to participate in intimate relationship and fellowship with him. In 1 John 1.5, This then is the message which we have heard of him, and declare unto you that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. God is light. You know what darkness is? It's the absence of light. And there is no absence of light in God. He's light. There is no darkness in him at all. There's no mixture. He's pure light. So, now most of you know that Jesus is God. However, I'd like to be very specific and say the Christ, the one who bore the full revelation and manifold presence of God, known as Jesus, is God, but he's known as the Christ. He's the Messiah. He's the one that came to save. And so a lot of people oftentimes look at Jesus and God as separate, when in actuality he is the full expression of God. And so we know that God is without mixture, and then when God comes to this earth and lives in a body, a body just like ours, how did he live it? Well, he lived it without mixture. It says of the Christ in 1 Peter 2, who did no sin and neither was guile found in his mouth. This man was without blemish. He was like a lamb without blemish. He was the the perfect enunciation of the paschal Passover lamb, the one that suffered for us in our place. We are full of sin, but he was not. So God is without mixture, and so is God in the flesh. He was without mixture. So now we we could further study the Apostle Paul, and the Apostle Paul was a man without mixture. I know that the modern church has attempted to try and make Paul a man full of many crimes and misdemeanors. However, Paul himself makes it very clear of the life he lived, and he commissions others to live the same life. And so we'll walk through that in just a very basic way today. But Paul upholds the standard of being untouched by the world, being separate from this world. And look at what Paul says about his message, his his life, his testimony. The things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do, and the God of peace will be with you. Therefore, I urge you, imitate me. Brethren, join in following my example and note those who who so walk as you have us for a pattern. Imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. You see, Paul followed Christ. And then he turns to us and says, you see this pattern? Do you hear what I'm teaching you? What I'm teaching you, you too are supposed to live. A lot of us will say, well, Jesus was God. That's why he lived that way. And then someone could say, well, what about Paul? Say, well, Paul was a special Christian. I mean, God doesn't actually expect people to live like that. What did Paul just say here? The things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do. Who's he talking to himself? No, he's not talking to himself. He's not talking to just other special Christians. He's talking to the church of Jesus Christ. Who are you anyway? You're the church. What's the good of the Bible if it's not for us? So do these things and the God of peace will be with you. Therefore, I urge you, imitate me. Who's he talking to? He's talking to us. He is talking to the church of Jesus Christ. Imitate him. Well, who's he imitating? Well, look at the very last line. Imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. So, 
We can say God is pure. God is without mixture. And we can say, well, yeah, Jesus, that's true. He was too. And then you hear the testimony of Paul throughout the New Testament. You're like, wow, what a calling. Well, I'm, I'm not him, though. I mean, that's Paul. I can't live that way. He says, you must. Well, how, have you ever tried? Have you ever tried to just live pure? Woken up one day and said, you know, I'm tired of being impure. I'm going to be pure. It doesn't work. You see, there's something that hinders us from being pure. We cannot imitate Paul as he imitated Christ. We cannot follow in this narrow way. We are unable to do it, which is why so many Christians today have thrown up their hands and said, I, you can't actually live out what the Bible says. We need to remake the Bible and make it say something it doesn't say to somehow give solace to our souls because we can't live this. The Christian without mixture, very simply put, keep thyself pure. Whoa, uh, a little too blunt, a little too straightforward, Paul. I mean, could you sort of give a little cushion to that one? Keep thyself pure. Purity, I'll give you a little definition. It means unmixed, clear and separate from foreign matter, freed from anything of a different nature, not intermingled with anything unlike or dissimilar. It's unmixed. So what I'm doing is I'm taking 1 Timothy 5.22 that says keep thyself pure, and I'm sticking in the definition for purity. Keep thyself pure, unmixed, clear and separated from foreign matter, freed from anything of a different nature, not intermingled with anything unlike or dissimilar. And I could say, you know how God is light and in him is no darkness? Yeah, like that. You know how God is holy? Yeah, like that. Uh, Eric, are, are you serious? Do you actually think we can do this? You can't do it. I know I can't, but I know someone who can, who did, and who has always lived this way. You see, the God who is pure has made himself available to us in and through the work of the cross so that we would not look to ourselves to try and muster up the ability to live a life that we can't, but that we would turn to him and say, I think you're the secret. He goes, bingo. God is the one that enables us to imitate God. Have you ever heard it said that it is impossible to imitate Jesus Christ, but there is a secret to imitation, and that secret is impartation. You see, you can't in your own strength be like God without mixture. However, the God that is without mixture has made himself available to impart himself to you and to live that unmixed life within you. 2 Corinthians 6, 14 through 18. Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers, for what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? Talking about mixture. And what communion hath light with darkness? And you could say none. And what conquered hath Christ with Belial? Of course, nothing. Or what part hath he that believes with an infidel? And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God hath said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. This is the conclusion. Wherefore, come out from among them and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing. And I will receive you and will be a father unto you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. But how can I know what is foreign matter? So we know that purity is the 
removal, not having any foreign matter. There's no mixture, but how do I know what is foreign matter? And that which is of a different nature and that which is unlike or dissimilar. Because I understand what you're saying, Eric. I'm not supposed to touch that stuff. I'm not supposed to have it in my life, but how do I even recognize it? We live in a culture where everything is blurred. All the lines are blurred, and everyone pats you on the back and says, that's not a big deal. Well, how do we know? Just the opinions of the modern culture we're in with everyone patting us on the back and saying, no, that doesn't matter. Yeah, you know, that used to be a big deal, but it isn't anymore. God's changed his mind on that one. Hmm. Is it modern philosophy? Political correctness that pats us on the back? How do we know what to keep out and what to allow in? Well, in Ezekiel 44, it's talking about priests. You see, the priests were entrusted with something. It's called the law of God. And they were given the law in order that they might teach the people the difference between the clean and the unclean, the holy and the unholy. That there would be a separation. There would be a difference. You see that? That's unholy. You see this? This is holy. And they shall teach my people the difference between the holy and the profane and cause them to discern between the unclean and the clean. In Leviticus 10, speaking again about the priests, and that you may be put difference between holy and unholy and between unclean and clean. How will we know this? Well, you could say, well, by the priests. Well, what are the priests getting their information from? Where where are they getting their understanding? Are they just making it up as they go go along? It's from the word of God. You see, the word of God is what clarifies what is clean and what is unclean. Do you guys know who the word of God made flesh is? It's Jesus Christ. Who is the ultimate high priest that is very excited and willing to teach us the difference between the clean and the unclean, the holy and the profane? The foreign fire. Now, this is a little strange. In fact, that's the term used in Scripture. It's called the strange fire. And that's a little awkward for us. There's something called strange fire. For us, it's like, well, you know, I don't know exactly what strange fire is. I know what fire is, but strange fire? I'm going to call it the foreign fire. That which is strange, opposite, different, unlike, dissimilar, and alien. There is a fire that is always supposed to burn on the altar of God in the temple of God. And the priests are supposed to make sure that they do not ever burn any incense on that altar that is foreign, that is strange, that is alien, that God has not prescribed. They are supposed to follow the very strict governance of what God has prescribed to them in the word of God and never deviate. See, Paul is taking an external temple in the Old Testament and he's saying, don't you know that you are the temple? The temple is no longer a building. It's you, it's your body, it's your life. And there's supposed to be no strange fire, no false or foreign incense ever burned in this life. And Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took either of them his censer and put fire therein and put incense thereon and offered, oh no, strange fire. There's our concept. Before the Lord, which he commanded them not. And there went out fire from the Lord and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. Let this be a lesson to us. Do not offer strange fire in the temple of God. Whoa! The lesson of Nadab and Abihu. No, we don't want to offer strange fire. What in the world is strange fire? Her priests have violated my law and have profaned mine holy things. They have put no difference between the holy and profane. Neither have they showed difference between the unclean and the clean and have hid their eyes from my Sabbaths and I I am profaned among them. If you do not show difference between the clean and the unclean, the holy and the profane... 
This is part of what it means to offer strange fire. See, what are you going to do? If you don't see any difference, you're going to start taking from anything. It's like, oh, I can offer this. And God says, no, 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 no. That's a strange fire. I know strange fire is a strange description, so let's get a little more specific. A short list of foreign fires. So instead of calling it strange fire, I'm going to call it foreign. It means it doesn't belong there. It is from another place, another country, another God. And it is not offered in the temple of Jehovah. So when the real fire is replaced with a false burning desire, hmm, that might resonate a little deeper. A false burning desire. I don't know if any of you have ever messed around with sin, but sin has various gradients, different shades, different ways of playing out. But one of the ways that you could describe it, if you ever have a compulsion, a longing, hmm, fire. It's like a fire burning within you. However, it's a foreign fire. When it is initiated by the flesh, by self-centeredness, to please you, you are in the temple of God actually offering a foreign fire. So when the real fire is replaced with a false burning desire. So in Exodus 30, the command is clear. You shall offer no strange incense. No foreign incense shall be offered here. None. Don't even think of it. And what do we do? Doesn't it seem like a daily activity? Even within the church? What has happened to the priesthood of believers? That we are entrusted with the very temple of God and the ministry of the temple, and yet we are bringing in foreign incense into this holy place. And some of you could say, I don't know how not to, Eric. I honestly don't want to. I find myself doing it daily, and I don't even know how not to. That's why this message is being given. So here's a foreign fire, addiction, when you cannot do without a particular substance, a thing, or an activity. You know, that's a strange fire. You know that we are not supposed to be addicted? We're not supposed to have such a compulsion, and we cannot even live. We start to, you know, go break out in a, a cold sweat when we don't have certain things. Like, what is wrong with us? And so if we, I mean, we could be as small as needing our coffee in the morning. In other words, if we are bound to anything outside of Jehovah God, something is wrong in our soul. Obsession. When the mind cannot think of anything but a particular person, substance, thing, or activity. Okay, now, this can take all sorts of different forms. And, you know, we could go through in great detail all the things. I'm hoping the Spirit of God can just take you by the hand and <laughs> lead you through your life. Do you have an obsession with anything? I mean, I've had obsessions with sports. That has been a classic thing. I'm not just going to talk guy-girl stuff here, which is the classic illustration for how purity is unfolded. These are strange fires, whether they be a sexual nature or they be of any inordinate affection. Anything where you are putting an undue amount of weight upon it and you are putting it above God in your soul. This is, this is from another realm. It doesn't belong in the heavenly courts. This does not behave properly in the kingdom of heaven. This must be eradicated. It's a mixture. Over-fascination. When the mind is preoccupied with every detailed piece of information and trivial fact regarding a particular person, substance, thing, or activity. Lust. When a desire for a particular person, substance, thing, or activity is so strong that a person is willing to harm others in order to gain and satisfy that desire. I don't care who this hurts. I don't care if it overrides your life and your dignity. I don't care. I need to be satisfied. 
lust. It'll kill you. It's a strange fire. And it will deteriorate and undermine the soul. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you as is fitting for the saints. So I'm going to do something in this scripture. And just, just know, I'm forewarning you. That's the scripture. That's the word of God. I'm going to, for your sake, to maybe see it a little more clearly. I'm going to take that short list and I'm going to put in all false fires instead. So it's going to read, but all false fires, let them not even be named among you as is fitting for saints. You see, we shouldn't even be associated with these things. And yet the church of Jesus Christ today, did you know that our divorce rate in the church is higher for many times? And this was a few years ago when the, when the statistic was pulled. Higher than those that don't even believe in Jesus Christ? What is wrong with us? That those that are bearing the name of Jesus are actually living with a greater breakdown of self-centeredness than even those that don't even have the solution in Jesus Christ? Would you blame this culture for considering Christianity an absolute joke? Hmm. You see, if it doesn't work for us, why in the world would anyone on the outside think it would actually change their life? It does work. But we need to remove the strange fire from our midst. Marshmallows. So I'm going to use marshmallows as sort of a picture of a strange fire. They are the gooey, sticky, sugary allurement. That, that which clogs the arteries. That which stops the heart. The enemy of health, the great opponent of life, the wages of which are death. A.K.A. sin. Now, yes, that is an extreme statement about marshmallows. But I have some here for us to just take a look at. That's a marshmallow uh, in that bag. And I have the nice plastic wrap around it just so it doesn't touch me. I mean, this is dangerous stuff. <laughs> but when I was younger, someone used the illustration of marshmallows with me. And so that's why it's very fresh in my mind when I start talking to you guys about this. Instead of talking about things that are a little more disturbing and can cause the younger ones in our midst to stumble, let's give an illustration that is not going to cause any of us to stumble, but more of us to laugh at even ourselves at how ridiculous we behave. So we're talking about marshmallows. And you may not like marshmallows, but let's imagine that you have an inordinate fixation with marshmallows. And all day long, every day, you are thinking about marshmallows. And anytime the, even the term, you know, like someone even uses an M word near you, like mar, and you're like, huh, marshmallow. Every sentence turns into a marshmallow sentence. Everything can be convoluted into something to do with marshmallows. Someone says anything about anything gooey, and they put it down. You're like, are you putting down marshmallows? And you're defensive for marshmallows. You're defensive for your addiction to marshmallows. Your, your obsession with marshmallows. Your over-fascination and your inordinate affection and your lust that you will compromise and go to great lengths to get another marshmallow. At night, you dream about marshmallows. Every conversation seems to somehow lead to marshmallows. Is something wrong with that person? I think I was describing you. I don't know. Uh, is something wrong with this person that is so inordinately affected by marshmallows? You better believe it. And every single one of us would know it. Some people can cover up their addiction to marshmallows a little better than others. You know, and sort of act like, oh yeah, marshmallows? Yeah, those are bad, bad, bad things. And just sort of go on their way and have their private stash of marshmallows. Which one's better, the man who lives out 
publicly. His problem with marshmallows are the man who goes secretly into his closet to find his hidden stash. Both are dying. And so it doesn't matter which way we come at it. There is something that oftentimes will kill our soul. But it's a strange fire that's being offered in the temple. And it's a mixture to our life. And as a result, we're dying. So the anatomy of innocence, we'll call it the ignorance of marshmallows. And so I'm a parent, and my desire, because I know my struggle with marshmallows growing up, so my desire is to keep my child away from marshmallows at all costs. And unfortunately, Hudson's in the room, so he's now heard about marshmallows. And so he's like, marshmallows? But up until this day, he's like, what's a marshmallow? Of course, he didn't know. This is an extreme illustration. But if you were trying to keep your children away from marshmallows, you wouldn't want them to be around anyone that talked about marshmallows, any shows or movies that ever mentioned marshmallows. Does it have marshmallows in it? And they would say, no, it's clean of all marshmallows. It's rated G. Like, all right, all right, okay, my kids can watch it. We don't want them even thinking about it, knowing about it. What this is called is innocence. Innocence and purity are not the same thing. A lot of times we as parents get them mixed up with each other. We think that the lack of understanding about the existence of something is in fact purity. When in actuality it's ignorance. It doesn't mean it's bad. It's actually a protective coating for a young child. So it's very important. So what do we do? Sort of a, <clears throat> let's get, I'm, I'm kicking the marshmallow bag right now just in case another of you can see it. Let's, let's get those marshmallows out of sight. I don't want my children to know they exist. This is what's called the anatomy of innocence. If I don't know what a marshmallow is, if I don't even know marshmallows exist, then I will have absolutely no interest in marshmallows and no temptation to obtain one. Thus, I cannot be harmed by their sugary powers and will not be under their spell. Huh, that's an interesting solution. It will only last so long. You see, we live in a hostile territory. We live in a debased world. And though we try and maintain ignorance and innocence as our shield for our children, that is not the shield that God has built for them. God did not say, be ye innocent or be ye ignorant. What he wants us to be is pure, unmixed, which means even though we may know about the existence of marshmallows, we have the strength of soul to deny them. That's what purity is. So let's keep going. The anatomy of sin. To know the sweet allure of marshmallows and their artery-clogging danger, and yet still eat them. See, the concept of sin is you've been awakened to the existence of marshmallows, and you even have been told, but don't eat those marshmallows. You ever had that? Oh, look at these marshmallows. Oh, they're so soft and gooey and sweet. But don't eat them. They'll clog your arteries and kill you. You're like, oh, if I could just have one taste. And then you eat of the marshmallow, and this is known as sin. Now, sin has many dimensions to it, and so this is an oversimplification even of sin, but you'll, at least for the, the sake of this message, understand. If I find out about the allure of marshmallows, if I find out that marshmallows clog your arteries and ultimately kill you, then I must stay away from them. But... What if I just can't seem to stop myself from reaching into the bag and sticking that gooey, sticky, sugary allurement into my mouth? Hmm. Then I will die. And that's exactly what's happening. We're dying. We know what we are not supposed to be doing. And yet we somehow can't keep our hand from digging in that bag and grabbing that gooey, sticky sweetness. There's a problem with us. 
You see, we've allowed mixture into our life, and we're slowly decaying because of it. Therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. So could you imagine the good in this situation, or what the law of God would state, and what the priest would teach you is, stay away from the marshmallows. Yes, that is unholy. That is unclean. They will kill you. And so you can know the law. You can know the truth, but you are not set free by law. Law does actually nothing to enable you to keep it. The law only reveals the power of sin. That's all it's doing is unveiling the fact that you have an issue. You have problems. And so the law exposes how unlike God you are. It exposes the fact that you are not like him, you are not like him, you are not like him. Or you could say it another way. He is not like you, he is not like you, he is not like you. See, he doesn't eat of those marshmallows. In him is no marshmallows at all. And yet in you is a big pile of them. Woe is us. You see, that's called the bad news. The bad news is we have an addiction. We have an over-fascination. We have an obsession. We have a lust. We crave the things that kill us. And we don't know what to do to change that. So let's look at the anatomy of purity. To know the power of marshmallows and still to say no to their enchantments. Have you ever seen anyone be able to do that? That's superhuman. It's the man without mixture. Remember who the man without mixture is? It's Jesus. You see, Jesus came into a world full of marshmallows and didn't partake of them. He did it. He was the lamb without blemish. He had no mixture in him. In him was no darkness at all. In his mouth was found no marshmallows. He was without the blemish that we carry. And yet, what does he do for us? He makes an avenue of escape. And this is what we're going to walk through. So let's, before we do get into purity at a deeper level, let's do the purity pop quiz. Is it okay to have one accidental impure thought? You see, this is what we deal with a lot. It's like, oops, it was just an accident. I mean, I, I'm going to try and not have another impure thought tomorrow. But I mean, God understands that we're going to have a little mixture, doesn't he? It's an interesting question. This is a pop quiz for you. Is it okay to look twice at something that you know is bait for a foreign fire? You're driving down the road and there's a little bait for foreign fire over there. I call it a billboard. Walking through the checkout line in the grocery store, a little bait for foreign fire sitting there in the, in the magazine section. Is it okay to look twice? I mean, you're only looking twice. That's better than looking ten times. Better than buying the crazy thing. Is it okay to look twice? Is it okay to have moments of less guardedness? Times when it's okay to flirt with foreign fire. I mean, you could watch yourself for a whole week be guarded against foreign fire. No, no, I'm not going to eat a marshmallow. And then on Friday night, binge on marshmallows. Isn't that okay? I mean, because the rest of your week when everyone was watching, you were fine. Is that okay? Is it okay to set down your guard during your dreams? A lot of us think that, you know, look, I'm not actually doing it. A dream doesn't count. You ever thought that? I don't know why the teaching about dreams is... I, mean, I don't talk about interpreting dreams and things like that, but your dreams are your subconscious, which, as far as I'm concerned, you're responsible for. I've been living this way for decades of my life. God, guard my dreams. I make decisions in dreams, and I want my decisions to be 
accurate with the way I'm going to live my life when I wake up. Have you ever felt dirty from a dream? Well, then ask God to penetrate your dreams. Don't deal with that stuff in your dreams. Ask God to make you a man or a woman of God in your dream life. That you can make decisions. I raised a guy from the dead in one of my dreams. I did. You can do some impressive things in dreams. <laughs> by the way, I was so shocked by it, too. I remember, in the name of Jesus Christ, rise up and walk. The guy, like, flies into the air. I'm like, whoa. <laughs> you live in purity every moment of every day. There's no mixture. A dream life is not a time to unplug from Jesus Christ and say, hey, this is my time. Are there any moments of your life that are to be excluded from the absolute necessity of purity? Do you believe you are a victim to foreign fire? Look, I can't keep the stuff out. It comes in and offers itself on the altar. I have nothing to do with it. Are you a victim to this? Or are you a perpetrator? You see, unless you know your need of a Savior, which means you've come to the conclusion, I am guilty. According to the Word of God, God's saying, you're a participant. You are the one offering the foreign fire. And you can say, but I'm a slave to this. Mm -hmm. But you're the one that allowed it in. You know, you could allow some monster into your house, and that monster controls you, but you still allowed it into your house. And you are culpable and responsible for that which the monster is, as a result, doing in your house. If someone came to my house to sell poison to my family, and I'm like, oh, absolutely, how much can I pay for that? They go, oh, you can have it. And they go, just mix one drop into each of your children's drinks. And then my children are sick for it. Who's responsible? I know the salesman is responsible. That's why the cross even came. It was a judgment of the devil and sin. However, who's also responsible? It's the man who's taking it into his house and sticking it in the drinks of those I love. You see, we are responsible for the mixture that we are bringing into our lives and the lives of those around us. And so as a result, we stand before that bar of judgment and we say, guilty. I agree with your word, Jesus. I am wrong. I am a perpetrator. I am mixed. I have done this incorrectly. But I come to you, the one who is unmixed, and I say, will you save me? Do you believe that there is actually a solution to addictions, obsessions, over-fascinations, and lusts? Do you believe that there is a solution? If you don't know that there's a solution, you'll never be saved from it. If so, what would you be willing to do in order to access that solution? Just imagine that you've never heard that there was a solution for this, but today you find out that there's a solution, and God says, what would you be willing to give up to get it? Well, I could go on record as saying, I would give up every single thing I have. If you find a treasure, a pearl of great price, what would you be willing to do to get it? Sell all. You give up everything in your life to get that truth, that life, that power. Foreign fire comes cheap. It's really interesting, but when foreign fire comes, one of the reasons we fall for it is it's so easy to get. Everything in the kingdom of heaven seems to have a little friction to it. Have you noticed that? Nothing ever comes easy. Victory and triumph in the Christian life is hard fought. You have to die in order to get it. However, foreign fire to burn on your altar... It's really strange, but you can get it at bargain basement prices. Top ramen, five for, for $1. This is my college deal. Uh, I remember sitting around the McDonald's table, and you know, we, we had spare cents a week as college guys. And so it's like, Lou, did you hear that they have uh, five for uh, $1 top ramen at Rose Hours? Really? 
Uh, five? Oh, yeah. I mean, this is like bargain basement prices. This is what we're after. And as a result, I will eat. I don't know what's in Top Ramen. I can only imagine there's a little MSG in that little, you know, concoction that comes with it that you dump in. And you can get it cheap. Kill yourself for hardly anything. Addiction. What would be the ad campaign? Ruin your life with one injection. Hey, you can ruin your life just one injection. It doesn't take a lot. Just one. That's all it takes. Obsession. Destroy your soul with only one look. You can get all the benefit from this obsession just with one look. And it will kill you. Lust. Get a free ride to hell with only one fling? Is that all it takes to get to hell? Uh Uh-huh. Just one fling. It comes cheap, doesn't it? To go downhill, there's no resistance. To go uphill, all hell stands against you. Which way are we supposed to be going? We're supposed to be headed in the other direction. So what happens is a lot of us are sliding down the hill in our life going, you know what, I'm in control of my life. No, you're actually not in control of your life. Sin is in control of your life. However, sin's not impeding your downward progression. Sin is letting you go where it leads you. You got in the sled and you're going down. And one, you know, along the way you're starting to get some rocks and bumps and, you know, some bruises. Things are hitting you and pelting you in the forehead and you're not doing so well. And you decide, you sort of roll over and crash and you're like hanging onto a rock saying, I don't want to go this direction. And there's oftentimes a decision that we will make to say, I'm going to go that direction now. I'm going to go up, not down. And you find that it's not so easy. That's when you begin to realize that you are not in control of your life. You can't just stop on a dime and go the opposite direction. You can't go up. You can only go down. Again, that's called the bad news. You see, outside of Jesus, there's actually no solution for going up. None. However... The good thing is, it's not like I'm saying there's no solution for going up. There is a solution. There's only one solution, and his name is Jesus. The cost for real fire. Well, it's way beyond what we can afford. How much strength does it take to halt impure thoughts? Have you ever had impure thoughts hitting you? And you could ask the question, how much? If there was like some dollar amount to it that you could pay, that you could earn up in your lifetime to be able to have the device that will stop impure thoughts from coming in? What would it be? A thousand bucks? And someone could invent this for us? What would the research campaign be like? I mean, what are they trying to find a cure for cancer, this pink ribbon campaign? What are they, billions upon billions? Trying to solve a simple thing that still, if you solve cancer, you could still go to hell? It doesn't solve the soul. There's no amount of dollar value that you could earn up to possibly create even one hindrance to impure thoughts coming in. Without Jesus Christ, you have no control over that thought life. And that thought life will oftentimes rule you. Many of us have figured that out somewhere along the line. How much strength does it take to flee the magnetic pull into sin? You ever felt that magnetic pull? You've desired, you've made a decision. It's like, I'm not going to go in that direction anymore. The next thing you know, there you are in that moment. (sighs) And you lose your sanity. Something inebriates your brain. It's like it turns into sort of a blubber pile. 
And you can't reason properly. And you still have thoughts, but they're weird thoughts. Sort of like, God will understand. He will forgive you. Where are these thoughts coming from? It's sin's own built-in mechanism for justifying your forward progression so that you do not quote Scripture in that moment. So that you do not turn to any truth. He has a prepackaged plan. It's called justification. So you will slide down that hill. How much strength does it take to look away when enticed? It takes an awful lot. Have you ever had the issue of a second look? There's a singular look. You're not responsible for it. You're just driving down their own mind in your own business. You're not the one that built that billboard. You didn't put it there. You didn't pay for the advertising campaign. And yet, to look away and to not look back is something that is otherworldly. It seems like it would come to us. All we have to do is decide in our inner man to say, I will not look. I tell you what, it is bizarre. But the power of allurement over us shows us and proves to us we are owned by something other than our own will. You see, we want to do that which is right, but something is missing. We do not have power within us, strength within us, to perform that which is right. We know we're not supposed to be eating of that marshmallow bag. We know we're not supposed to stick our hand in it. Well, there we are again with our hand in it. And someone clicks the picture and they're like, "Eh, Eric, that's you. What is wrong with me? What is wrong with me? Paul says, who can save me from this body of death? His next line is, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. How much righteousness does it take to offer the real thing? So, imagine you try and do some good deeds. You try and avoid marshmallows. You try and do all these things. How much righteousness does it take to acquire from the throne room of grace true holy fire. You know where holy fire comes from? God. You know where the fire for the altar even came from? God. How do you purchase that? You ever tried to earn up enough money to get into the throne room of grace to say, yeah, God, look at all my righteousness that I have for you. Can I have some holy fire now so I can live the life that pleases you and I can offer a proper sacrifice? How much righteousness are you going to need? What would it take to earn that? It's impossible, the Bible says. You can't. So as a result, you are without holy fire, and all you have is strange fire, which means you're a dead man. You have no hope in this world unless God intervenes, which, by the way, 2,000 years ago, he did. Wherefore, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ so we might be justified by faith. You see, we're not justified by the law. The law had a purpose, and that was to expose the fact that we have a strange propensity towards strange fire. And we have an uncanny ability to sin and an uncanny ability to not do that which is right. We need help. And what shows us that? The law. So the priests come and they say, this is what is clean and this is what is unclean. We find ourselves constantly doing that which is unclean. And he says, this is what is holy, this is what is unholy. And what do we find ourselves doing? That which is unholy. And the law is a schoolmaster tutoring our soul, saying, you are wrong, you are incorrect. You need a savior. There is a Messiah that is coming. And that's what the law does. The law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ. So let's talk about real purity. The man without mixture must make the exchange. God will give you the courage, but will you accept the cost? Imagine that God had all the courage you need to be able to stand in the day of testing, in the day of proving. And God says, I have it for you, but will you accept the cost? 
You see, what if you knew that to gain the courage that you need in your soul to stand up and be pure in a generation will cost you everything? For it likely may cost you your life. Remember the three boys in Babylon? What were their names? Typically, they're known as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That's their Babylonian names. I think their Hebrew names were Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Three boys that refused to compromise. Refused to compromise. And as a result, what would it cost them? Well, it would cost them their life if God didn't intervene. But that's purity. You see, they were unwilling to bring mixture into their souls. That's the story of all three of them and Daniel. All the other Israelite kiddos compromised. They allowed an impurity in. But there was something about these four, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, and Daniel, that refused to allow in the mixture. So remember the three boys in Babylon. What will it cost you, though? Potentially a fiery furnace. There's no guarantee that you'll get out of the fiery furnace without being scorched. However, you give your life for that which is true, that which is pure, it's worth it. Remember Peter's death. Peter, what a man. Here he is living this life for Jesus Christ, and he's being brought to his death. This is Christian history, by the way. And he's going to be crucified, just as Jesus was crucified, which, by the way, is a very horrible form of death. Absolute torment, every bone out of joint. Absolute agony. And Peter, to not allow any mixture in his life, says, I am unworthy to die a death in similar fashion as Jesus. And so did you know that he was crucified upside down? Peter was crucified in a more painful way because he did not want to rob any glory from the cross work of Jesus Christ. Whoa! The amount of integrity in the soul. No mixture. God will supply you the strength, but will you receive the persecution? To stand pure in a generation is one of the hardest things you could ever do. It's funny, but purity has a bad rap today. It's sort of a nerdy quality. It's like, oh, oh, you're one of those pure ones. In other words, you couldn't have a relationship if your life depended on it. So as a result, you chose purity. Is that what purity is? No. That is not what purity is. Purity is a deliberate choice. Let me me give you an illustration. Caterpillar. Caterpillar is stuck in the dirt, just like we are. But a caterpillar has a higher calling, just like we do. So a caterpillar needs to enter into a cocoon. We could call it the cocoon of innocence. And so a caterpillar enters into a cocoon, and it's being protected from the world. And in that cocoon, something is strengthening. We could call it wings butterfly wings. And in that cocoon, if that cocoon season is protected, there is a right time for that cocoon to break away. And what does that butterfly have? It has now the strength to fly in the world but not be of it. You see, a butterfly who used to be in this world, in the dirt, just like we are, entered into a cocoon in order that purity might be established, that those wings might develop and grow. So that when it is released into this world, it flies. It's still in the world, but it's not of this world. That's purity. So, but true purity, by the way, the one that's flying above, the one that's not touching the dirt, is not a popular one in this world. It's made fun of. Stones are hurled at it. Harsh words are thrown at it. 
God will supply you the strength, but will you receive the persecution? There's persecution that comes with this. If you're willing to walk a different way and be unmixed with this world, it's going to cost you. Anyone who lives a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. For it, is like, it will likely lead to the world rejecting you and casting you out. Remember Athanasius. Athanasius was asked to compromise his doctrine. He believed that Jesus Christ was in fact God. And all the church at that time was swept away with what's called the Arian heresy. Even Constantine himself said, Athanasius, recant. The world is against you. And Athanasius said, well, if the world is against me, then Athanasius is against the world. I will not recant. And Athanasius, that's where the term Athanasius contramundum comes from. Athanasius against the world. You know, Athanasius was exiled five times. You want to live without mixture. You need to be willing to walk in the shoes of Athanasius. Remember Richard Wormbrandt. The communists come into Romania and they are attempting in their first maneuver to undermine the church leadership. And they give them an option. I mean, there's, a, there's an option here. You either preach the communist message, which is atheism, and deny that God even exists and that Christ is the answer, or we'll kill you. You have two choices. And pastor after pastor is beginning to kowtow and compromise. Richard Wormbrandt and his wife Sabina come to a pastor's con- conference And these men are getting up and actually blaspheming God. Pastors are blaspheming God in front of the KGB to get their approval and to get their pat on their back. And Sabina looks over at Richard and says, will you not wipe the spit from the face of Christ? And Richard looks back at Sabina and says, if I say anything, they'll kill me. And her famous statement back was, I would rather be married to a dead man than a coward. So Richard Wormbrandt stands up. He walks to the front of the building and he speaks. He removes the mixture from the room. And he says, Christians, we do not cohabitate with communism, with atheism. In God is light. There is no darkness at all. May we be separate, though it cost us our lives. God will provide you the holy fire. But will you embrace the scorn that is certain to come with it? You can't purchase the holy fire. You can't access the courage and the strength needed for what you are called to. This only comes from Jesus. But what if you knew that God will supply you with the holy fire? But he wants to ask you a question. But will you embrace the scorn that is certain to come with it? Remember David the shepherd boy? David had a ram's horn of oil poured out upon his head. The first thing that happened after he was anointed king by Samuel is he was sent back to tend to the sheep. That was the first thing that happened. Talk about a dad and brothers not really accepting the fact that Samuel was all there. He's back taking care of the sheep. However, he's going to take care of those sheep the way a king would take care of those sheep. A lion and a bear come in and he breaks their jaws. He says, no, you don't touch that. You see, he allowed no mixture into his flock. And then what does he do? He sees Goliath standing in the day of battle. He's he's only delivering bread and cheese. He sees Goliath standing there. Mixture. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he would blaspheme the armies of the living God? You know what his older brothers did? They jeered at him. Oh, look at David. Look at David. He has the holy fire. Are you willing 
to grab a hold of that holy fire that Jesus has made available to you, knowing full well that it's going to cost you in this life. So how do I get this holy fire? Let's talk about unlocking the secret to purity. So this is, some of you are going to not be totally satisfied with me giving away the secret here, because you're like, well, that doesn't help me. The secret, it's a sweeter song and a strong stand. You're like, oh, great, Eric, that didn't do anything for me. It's not practical enough. Well, let's get practical. The sweeter song, the something better that we all know is out there. If any of you have ever read When God Read Your Love Story, we have a little story in the front, and it's called The Sweeter Song. Great story. It's from uh, Greek mythology. And you have this one sea, and all the ships had to pass it. All the great captains would have to pass this coastline. There's a problem. It's called the Siren Coastline. These beautiful mermaid-like creatures that sing this intoxicating melody. And every red-blooded captain that would come along would be allured in. Even if he was warned, he'd be allured in and crash his boat against the rocks. The boat would sink. They would die. And yes, they did get a good earful of siren melody, but they died in the process. And so Ulysses, the great captain, the great hero of Greek mythology, is forewarned about the sirens, and he has to pass this coastline. What's he going to do? What are you going to do? Oftentimes, we try and handle the siren coastline the way that Ulysses did. It's not the easy way. However, it sort of works. And that is, he plugs his ears. No, I'm sorry. He plugs the ears of all of his crewmen. And he has his crewmen with beeswax, I think is what he chose. And he has his crewmen tie him to the mast. And he makes sure that they cannot read lips. He says, do not read my lips because I may go insane for a period of time. But Ulysses wanted so desperately to hear the song, but he didn't want to lose his ship and he didn't want to lose his men. And he knew he may lose his sanity. So as a result, he tied himself to the mast, had his crew plug their ears with beeswax. And guess what? They made it past the Siren coastline. How do you think Ulysses was doing the whole time? He was screaming at the top of his voice for them to turn the ship, and no one was heeding him. He was threatening them with cyclops, feedings, and everything. No one would heed him. He was miserable the entire time. Sure, he made it past the Siren coastline, but he was miserable. And many of us have attempted the same. Out of grit, determination, we will make it. However, we are miserable this entire life. There's another boat that passed that very few people ever hear about, but another captain passed that way, and his name is Orpheus. Orpheus, as they were approaching the Siren coastline, handled the Siren coastline very different than Ulysses. And his crew got excited because it's Siren coastline! Just up to the right! And Orpheus smiled, and the crew let out a cheer, and then the crew said, Will you play for us, Captain? And Orpheus said, get my instrument. And so one of the crew members went and got his instrument, and Orpheus unpacked it and brought out this beautiful, I always picture sort of a violin-like instrument. And all the crew settled around him. And as the siren coastline was approaching, Orpheus began to play. Pretty soon they'd passed the siren coastline. Not one of the crew members even once thought of the sirens. Why? Because they heard a sweeter song. Have you ever heard a sweeter song? You see, the world has its bait. The world has its marshmallows. It's like, you've got to be kidding. You see, if all we have is marshmallows and nothing, I can understand why we keep failing. 
We don't have marshmallows and nothing. We have the ultimate banquet feast of the person of Jesus Christ. And we're settling for a gooey, sticky, sweet allurement that clogs your arteries and kills you? What's wrong with us? Most of us have never seen. We've never heard the sweeter song. We've never come to our captain and say, could you play for me? You see, there's an allurement up to the right here. But I'm turning to you because I know my weakness. But I believe you have something. And he says, get my instrument. Go to my cross. I have it there for you. And as we behold the cross, as we behold the man without mixture, as we fall in love with the great person of Jesus Christ and what he's done for us, We pass that siren coastline and we fail to see why it could ever entrance anyone because we have seen something far greater. Which lens are you looking through? The earthly lens or the heavenly one? If you have earthly glasses on, then you see funny. The things that the earth boasts about and says, this is what matters. Marshmallows, marshmallows, marshmallows. And you look and if you have the earthly lens on, that's all you can see is marshmallows, marshmallows, marshmallows. But if you have a heavenly lens on, you look at marshmallows, you're like, why in the world would I sabotage my soul and give up everything for that? That's cheap nothingness. However, which lens do you have on? The palace of the cave. We have a message at Ellerslie called the Cave of Adullam. It's the place that David hid out for 11 years when he was being hunted by Saul. Saul, the king of Israel, a great picture of the flesh in the Old Testament, has control. He's been rejected as king, just like you have been in your body. You've been rejected. However, you still sit there, enthroned with your spear, throwing it at the rightful ruler, Jesus Christ. And so he's still enthroned in Israel, even though he's been rejected. You know that if you side with Saul, he has palaces, comfort, down comforters, soft pillows. What does David have? He has a cave. A little colder. Uh, He has rocks for pillows. Maybe a little sand uh, for bed sheets. You don't have comfort. However, if I were to ask you, which one do you want? The palace or the cave? Which one do we naturally lean towards? Now, I know there's some rough and tumble Bears Grills guys in here but, uh, that are like, oh, I love the cave. <laughs> However, most of us understand what this symbolizes, and that is there's a pull. There's a desire for ease. There's a desire for comfort to stroke us. And yet God says, you're not asking the right question because you're saying, what would make me feel better? The question a Christian asks is this, where's Jesus? And if they say he's in the cave, I choose the cave. I want to be where Jesus is. The phylacteries are the leathern girdle. You pick your clothing. The phylacteries, that's what the Pharisees wore. And they looked good, I guess. They looked good, and everyone was so impressed with them. Oh, the Pharisees, they're so righteous, so godly. And then one man strides into town with a leathern girdle, hair all wild, popping locust and wild honey. Which one do you want to be? Do you want to be looking good for this world? You pick your clothing. Because the clothing that is offered to us in the New Testament is far more similar to a leathern girdle than it is phylacteries. It's called the person of Jesus Christ, who, by the way, died naked upon a cross. Are you willing to put on him as your clothing? He was forsaken by this world that he came to save. Are you willing to put on him as your clothing? He was a worm and no man. 
are you willing to wear Jesus Christ? The pleasures of the moment or the pleasures only gained through patient endurance. You pick your, pick your pleasure source. You could have it now, a marshmallow. Or you'd have to wait as they fire up the grill and bring out the steak and have to cook it. Oh, this is taking forever. You could just have it now. The pleasures that are available in the instant oftentimes kill you. Now, I'm not saying that a steak can't do the same. (laughs) However, there is a difference in quality between what we're talking about here. You have something that you could have now. In, In Pilgrim's Progress, and I just shared this with the students a few weeks ago. In Pilgrim's Progress, there's passion and patience. And they both are promised toys. And passion wants his toys now. And he's hammering away, you know, on the floor, beating the wall, saying, Give me my toys! He's screaming, yelling, and so guess what? They bring him out toys. They weren't very good toys. They were not very well made. In fact, the wheels pop off, and everything just eventually just dissipates and dissolves and blows away like dust. Pretty soon, Passion has nothing. When he first got his toys, he was looking over at Patience going, Hee hee. And Patience has sat there silently. Because he knows that the one who runs the house is faithful. And he knows that if he's promised toys, he will bring toys. And his toys are good toys. And so he's patient. And guess what? After passion's toys dissipate into nothing and blow away like dust, the real toys come out. And they're given unto patience. And patience gets toys that never wear out. And they are so much far superior to anything passion ever had. Are you willing to do this right? You know that it's the harder way? The applause of this world or the applause of heaven? You pick your audience. You know that if you seek impurity, everyone's impressed with you in this world? It's a really odd thing. But if you pick marshmallows, everyone seems to be really impressed with you. It's like, go Eric, yeah. Eric's really got it. You're killing yourself. And yet you can get the applause of this earth. But are you willing to forsake the mixture? And gain the applause of one, Jesus Christ. The fires of hell are the everlasting joys of heaven. It's sort of a difficult decision, isn't it? You see, anything that you are choosing in the marshmallow direction is going to kill you. But if you're willing to forsake the mixture, and I know some of you could still say, but I don't know how to forsake it. I don't want it. I don't know how to get away from it. We'll get to that. If you're willing to turn your back on it, And turn unto Jesus Christ, even though you might live in a cave. You might wear a leathern girdle. You might have to wait for your pleasures. Your pleasures will come. And you will hear a sweeter song. And the whole while in that cave, you are not left alone. It's not like you're abandoned in a cave, just sort of thrown in. Like, hunk, hunk. That's not how you live. There's a reason why you're choosing that cave. Remember your question? Where's Jesus? That's what matters to you. Well, he's, he's in the cave. I'm going to the cave. The old man or the man? You pick your beloved. David, the one who lived in the cave, his name means beloved. The one who is dearly loved. So why would David's mighty men choose him over Saul? Why would they do that? Because he's dearly loved. Why would they live in a cave with him? Because he's dearly loved. Why would you live in a cave? 
Why would you wear a leathern girdle? Some of you are like, I don't know about this leathern girdle thing. I mean, a cave is one thing. A leathern girdle, hair going all wild and eating locusts and wild honey. I don't know about this. I don't know what it's going to look like for us in this modern generation. It'll probably look different than John the Baptist. But the same thing. Are we willing to look that way to this world? Why would anyone ever choose a cave? So let's go through it real quick. You have an invitation. Why you would ever accept the invitation is sort of strange. But you open it up and mine might say, Eric, would you join me in the cave? Your beloved Jesus. He wants me. <laughs> he, wa he wants me. You see, when he died on that cross, he died for me? Not just for you, for me? See, if you don't understand the personal dimension to this invitation, you'll never go to the cave. The cave will just be a concept out there. And someone could say, does the cave exist? You go, true, absolutely, it does. And you're calling that belief. But actuality says that belief is knowing personally. It's yours. Receiving an invitation and then responding to the invitation. You could take that invitation, throw it down, and stomp on it. You could. But for whatever reason, you're not doing that. You read it over and over and over again. And you recognize to go to David in the cave means to make, take a public stand against Saul. And if I take a public stand against Saul, I will too, just like David, be the hunted and despised in Israel. Gulp. However, as long as I keep living here in Saul's kingdom, with my pleasures and all the things that are for me, I'm not living. I'm dying. I want to live. But more than that, I want to be with David. What is it about David? What is it about Jesus that allures us, that attracts us? See, we, for a whole season of our life, we've stared at marshmallows. But suddenly, we're not thinking about marshmallows. We're thinking about Jesus. And we want to get as far away from marshmallows as we can. We're tired of being subservient to marshmallows. We're tired of dying. We want to live. I want to go to the cave. And someone could come up to you and say, where are you going? I'm just going down here. It's called a cave. Uh, a cave? You're going to live in a cave? Yeah. Why would you live in a cave? If you were to think about just a cave, it's like, well, rock for pillow, cold at night. doesn't sound very fun. But there's a reason why you're going there. It's not the fact that it's a cave that draws you there. It's the fact that the one you love is in that cave. You show up at the cave and all of David's mighty men surround the opening like, hey, who are you? Pokey in the chest. My, my name's uh, Eric uh, Ludi. I have an invitation from the king. Let me see that. And they're looking it over saying, he invited you? And looking me up and down. I know. Can you fight? Can you swing a sword? No. Can't do really anything. Can you defend yourself at all? Like when a bad thought comes, can you push it away? No. Uh, well, you, you know that you can't have any addictions, you can't have any over-fascinations, any lusts or anything like this. I, he, he invited me. That's all I know. And could you imagine the voice behind them says, let him through. Let him through. And they part ways and they're like, you're letting this guy through? He needs what I have. Come into the cave. And so I walk past the mighties as they're sniffing me over, looking me up and down, and I'm not very impressive. And I come in, and he says, well, 
Look around. It's not very impressive, I know, on earth, but this isn't what it's always going to be. I will come into my kingdom. But for right now, this is your home. It's a little colder at night, and yes, you have a rock for your pillow, but I will never leave you nor forsake you. And you know how you've been abused out there and been taken advantage of by the marshmallows? In here, you're under my rulership. And if a marshmallow could get me, it can get you. But no marshmallow can get me. There was no marshmallow found in my mouth. You see, the one to whom you've come to is able. He is strong. He has that which you need. And the most amazing thing about this, when I reflect upon the cave, being in a place that is not as comfortable, yes, I will agree with that. It doesn't look good to the outside world. And all of Saul and his cronies are laughing and mocking. All they want to do is kill you. You're the problem in Israel. However, you're with the one you love. The tenderness in his eyes. The gentleness in his manner towards you. Because if anything, you've stood against him. And yet he receives you. He actually sent that invitation to you in his own hands, signed with his own blood. He says, come on in. And he watches over you. He tends to you. He says, you know what? I know you're weak right now. And I know you don't have the ability to defend yourself. But I'm going to train you for battle. I'm going to train you how a man fights. I'm going to train you how to stand. You remain in this cave. Remain clothed in my protection. And I will build you strong. At night, you're sleeping in the cold cave. And it's a little uncomfortable in the rocks. You wake up a few times. Every time you wake up, who's looking down at you? Your beloved. He's walking, pacing, watching you at all times. Even sing songs, one of those Hebrew songs, is filling the air. And there's such comfort, even in the night seasons, even when it's dark. And when you wake up in the morning, he's squatting next to you, saying, you're ready for an adventure today. At all times, you are with the one you love. And as I said to the students this semester, even if heaven was a cave, I want to go to heaven. I want to be where Jesus is, always, only. It's a sweeter song, and if any of you have not heard it, you have to hear it. Because we are not attracted just to a cave, to a leathern girdle, to locusts and wild honey. That's not what attracts us. We're willing to live in a cave, and we're willing to eat locusts and wild honey, and we're willing to wear a leathern girdle, and we're willing to wait for our pleasures. Because we're with the one we love. That's why we do it. Purity is not merely the absence of the bad. It's the exclusive presence of the perfect. It's not just the removal of the bad stuff from our life. It's the presence of something. If you do not have the presence of that something, good luck. You don't have purity. You cannot just try and restrain yourself from bad things. You must have the presence of the good thing. You must have that which satisfies your soul. Otherwise, you'll always be looking elsewhere to satisfy The secret. Remember, this is a review. A sweeter song and a strong stand. So we just talked about a sweeter song. You have to know what motivates you. You have to have a vision for something better. Well, let's now talk about the strong stand. The strong stand. Accessing a heavenly strength that is not your own. Purity involves judgment. Last week I gave a message called the summer spot. And it was about judging. Proper judging. Very strange because we as Christians are like, oh, we're not supposed to judge. Well, actually, the Bible is very clear on the fact that you must judge. However, you must judge spiritually, by the spirit and not by the flesh. And so that was what the whole message was on. 
And so purity involves judgment. You must make decision. You cannot be half in, half out. You can't say, oh, I'll just have half a marshmallow. You must make a decision on marshmallows. These things are killing me. And therefore, I cut off my relationship with them. So one of our first words is aile, which means the sun's rays, the light of the sun, the light of God's word, the light of truth. It's light. It's a bright light. Okay, and this is a Greek word, and we're going to bring out another word. This is the word from last week, krino which means to judge, to decide with governing authority, to oversee and arbitrate what is truth and what is error, to bring finality of judgment, to determine punishment and sentence based on revealed evidence. This is clean. This is unclean. This is holy. This is profane. Make a judgment on it. Where do you stand? So for those of you that are uncomfortable with judgment, you need to listen to last week. Because it's not that we're supposed to do the opposite of what Jesus says when he says, judge not lest you be judged. We're like, oh no, throw that out. No, that's the word of God. However, he's talking about an improper judging. He says, first take the blank out of your eyes so that you can see clearly to remove the speck from someone else's. So there is first a judgment that needs to come to your own soul to clear the eyesight so that now you can actually have position to help people. God is not wanting, could you imagine a home without any judgment? My kids go wild. I'm like, well, I can't judge. I can't make any decision in this home. I can't bring any punishment because, you know, that would be against the Bible. Can you imagine a government? Imagine the United States of America without any judgment. We may not even agree with their judgment. I'm still glad we have a penal system. I'm really glad we have judgment and we have consequence. Otherwise, you have anarchy in a society. You have to have judgment. It's a very important part of the Christian life. So, Eile and Crino. Now let's do a little combo package. Eile plus Crino equals Eile Crinos. Okay, I know you're like, what does this have to do with anything? Well, I'm about to introduce you to a Greek word, okay, which is the combination, it's very similar to Eile Crinos, which means to be judged, examined, or inspected by the light of God's word, or to judge, examine, and inspect using the light of God's word. You need to make judgment, but how are you going to judge in light of God's word? So your soul is wrong. You have marshmallows in your digestive system. Allow the light of God's word to shine, to point at those marshmallows and go, "Mm -mm, unclean. You see, we must make judgment in light of God's word. Here's our word, aelikrines. That's the combination of those two words, aelikrines. Listen to what it means. Pure, sincere, and unsullied. Found pure when unfolded and examined by the sun's light. Without mixture, clear and separated from foreign matter, freed from anything of a different nature, not intermingled with anything unlike or dissimilar. Huh. So, it's a judgment that you must make in your soul by the help of God's word. God says this is true. And you say, and I agree with it. And this I pray, that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment, that you may approve things that are excellent. Listen to this. That you may be aelikrines. That you may be found pure, sincere, unsullied, without mixture. Is what Paul says. And without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ unto the glory and praise of God. This second epistle, so now Peter is using the word. So Peter says, look, I'm writing to you guys again, a second letter. So this second letter, beloved, I now write unto you in both in both, both letters, which I stir up your eilikrines minds. 
by way of remembrance, that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandments of the apostles of the Lord and Savior. It's a very difficult translation to even understand, and so I'm going to do a little uh, working with you on this. So here's our verse in 2 Peter 3. The second epistle, beloved, I now write unto you in both which I stir, which means to agitate the waters, awaken or arouse, you're pure, and then it has, ailikrines is our word there, minds, which means way of thinking. So it's not just a typical mind, it's a way of thinking. By way of remembrance, or by reminding you, that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before of the holy prophets and of the commandments of us, the apostles, of the Lord and Savior. So... I'm going to give you my paraphrased version of this, since I've done this, just so you can see what Peter is saying here. The Eric edition. I am writing this second epistle, beloved, so that I can rouse you once again to judge, examine, and inspect by the light of God's word everything that attempts to come into your mind. I will continue to press this point over and over again that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandments of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. The word of God. What is Peter saying? I've written to you twice. Why? I've written to you so that you may judge and examine according to the light of God's word. What is going on in your minds? That you would be able to make judgment on this. That you would not be a pushover. So how is he doing this? He's reminding them over and over and over again. Do you hear me, guys? Examine this in light of God's word. That is not a holy thought. That is not a clean thought. That is a profane thought. That does not belong in the church of Jesus Christ what he's saying he's writing two epistles to say it look i'm writing the second epistle to say this to you again that you may have highly minds that you may have a thought life that is pure and unmixed because the thoughts are the entrance of everything that is in the soul and so if you stop things at the thought level they can't enter into the depths of our being dramatically shifting direction a study in the manliness of phineas the priest So let me give you a little background. The time period is Israel in the wilderness, and they have not yet entered the land of promise. So in in Ellerslie, I always talk about Egypt, wilderness, promised land. Well, the days of Phineas are stuck right in the wilderness. This is a pretty desperate season. Forty years they were here in the wilderness. Things aren't looking very good for Israel. And so what Phineas represents is a man without mixture. He represents something, and I'm going to say, I want to see what you're seeing in Phineas here in each of our souls. So the grave situation. Israel has gone headlong after foreign fire. They have turned their back on God and have begun to bring in disgusting mixture into Israel, worshiping the false god Baal and even joining themselves to him through sacrifice. There's a lot of bad things that happen. I'm just going to keep it simple. As a result, the people of Israel are dying by the droves. In fact, at the time of this story, 24,000 have died due to this decision to bring foreign fires into the camp. Israel is no longer pure. There's no Eilikrines. They have the law of God. Moses is alive. And yet they've totally turned their back on the law of God. They don't want to hear what is clean and what is unclean. They don't want to hear what is holy and what is unholy. They have brought in foreign fire. And as a result, they're dying. This is just what happens. You bring in foreign fire, you die. So the moment of decision, will someone in Israel stand up? Who's going to do something about this? What's going to happen here? Are we just going to watch this? Is there a man in Israel who cares? 
Will the life of Israel be completely swallowed up before sanity returns and the purity is once again brought back to the people? <clears throat> Some background mu- mu- music here. Introducing Phineas, the priest. Is there a man? Is there anyone in Israel that cares? Let me ask your soul that question. Is there anything in you that wants to change directions? Is there any Phineas in you that is saying, that's enough. I refuse to allow Israel to be overcome with this. This is not right. Introducing Phineas the priest. Then stood up, stood up Phineas and executed judgment. And so the plague was stayed and that was counted unto him for righteousness unto all generations forevermore. Let me give you a little more of a detailed account. And behold, one of the children of Israel came and brought unto his brethren a Midianitish woman in the sight of Moses. This is literally right in front of Moses and the congregation of elders. He literally walks in front of them and into his tent with a Midianitish woman in direct disregard. Just what a snubbing of Moses and the leadership of Israel. It's a snubbing of God Almighty, the law of God. I know this is unclean according to your law, but right in front of you and right in front of a nation, I'm going to do it anyway. Whoa! So this man, Zimri, takes this Midianitish woman into his tent right in front of all Israel, including Moses. What's going to happen? And in the sight of all the congregation of the children of Israel who were weeping before the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. I love this part. And when Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, saw it, he rose up from among the congregation and took a javelin in his hand. And he went after the man of Israel into the tent and thrust both of them through, the man of Israel and the woman through her belly. Sorry. I'm not excited about that part. I'm excited about Phinehas. I'm excited about the judgment that he brought so clearly because this is a picture of our souls. What we are seeing here is many of us have that Midianitish woman brought in before the law of God. And God has said, that is unclean. And with such audacity, we take it right in front of that law, snub it, and walk into our tent with it. How dare we? Is there a Phineas in our soul? Who is that Phineas? It's Jesus. Is there a Jesus in the camp that is willing to rise up and bring judgment to sin and death, to that which is crippling us. Do you know what the cross is? It is a judgment on sin and death right through the belly, pinning it to the tent floor. And Israel is purged of it. It's cleansed. The plague is stopped because a priest rose up and did the work of a priest, the work of an intercessor. And he went after the man of Israel into the tent and thrust both of them through. So the plague was stayed from the children of Israel, and those that died in the plague were twenty and four thousand. And the Lord spoke unto Moses, saying, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, hath turned my wrath away from the children of Israel, while he was zealous for my sake among them, that I consumed not the children of Israel in my jealousy. The return of the judges. Men and women who make judgment according to the light of God's word within their souls. That we allow the spear, the javelin of Phineas in our soul to say, nope, not on our watch. Israel will maintain its purity. You see, Jesus Christ, as the gospel progresses in our soul, Jesus Christ moves in. And he takes up residence and he is king. He is lawgiver. 
and he begins to train us what is clean and what is unclean. And then he hands a javelin to us. And we're like, whoa, what am I supposed to do with this? This is your javelin. This is your javelin. And he says, and I've entrusted it to you to bring judgment within this body. You see, I will give you the authority and I will give you the power to do it. So when a thought comes knocking on the door of Israel, and Zimri, with his swagger and his haughty arrogance, desires to come in and make a mockery of my kingdom, you bring judgment on it. That thought is already judged. That sin no longer has access into your life. I have given you the javelin of Phineas. Use it. And that's Christianity. Christianity is the return of the judges. But not to the stage of this world, to the stage of the soul. So that we can transact with the same power and authority that we see in the Old Testament. And we can bring judgment on that which seeks to defile the camp of Israel. The return of the judges, men that have a vision for what Israel ought to be and are willing to do whatever it takes to see it become that way once again. In 2 Corinthians, it talks about the weapons of our warfare that are mighty to the pulling down of strongholds. And one of the things it says is casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. Could you imagine Phineas's javelin in your hand? And you say... Uh, hark, who goes there? And the thought has to expose itself. An unclean thought, it says. A marshmallow. According to the laws of my God, according to his definition of how this soul should be operated, you are not welcome here. Unless you want this javelin of Phineas, by the way, to go through your belly, I would suggest that you leave and not return. Do you have that authority in your life? Do you understand where that authority comes from? Because that's how Christianity functions. Christianity is not a lowly thing, even though we are very lowly. Christianity is lowliness being brought up to a great position of authority and strength, not by our authority, but by his authority. And he hands us a javelin. To dramatically shift direction, judgment must be executed. If you're tired of going in the direction of the marshmallows, then judgment must be executed. You must grab a hold of that javelin. You must say, I, God, I, I, I've been a pushover all these years. Something needs to change in this soul. Then stood up Phineas and executed judgment, and so the plague was stayed, and that was counted unto him for righteousness and unto all generations forevermore. The first place is for judgment. Eile plus crino equals executing judgment by the light of God's word. So what are the first places for judgment? The word of God in text, you need to make a decision on that. You need to make a judgment. God himself says it is in fact the word of God. In it is no lie, no exaggeration. It is called truth. Thy word is truth, it says in John 17. Thy word is truth. Do you believe it? You must make a judgment on the word of God. Because if you do not have a foundation on the word of God, everything else is just human opinion. You must have a judgment in the word of God in person. Who does the word of God in text say the word of God in person is? Jesus Christ. This is God Almighty. And it says that he created the heavens and the earth. That he's the first and the last. He is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He is God himself. And so you must make a judgment in light of God's word. You want purity to work in your life. You must begin to make judgment in your soul on what the word of God in text is and what the word of God in person is. The cross, you must make a judgment on the cross. 
In light of God's word, what do you say? That is my lone means of salvation. The work that was done there was a work done for me. It is a work of redemption. It's a work of atonement. It's a work of propitiation. Without that work, I cannot be justified. Without that work, I have no righteousness. I have no avenue of entry into the presence of the Father. You must make a judgment on that in light of God's word, in person and in text. You see, without judgment, without Phineas's javelin, you are weak. But you pick up Phineas's javelin, the authority of the text of Scripture, the authority of Jesus Christ, and you begin to move forward in your soul because it's going to make judgment on those marshmallows. Your position in Christ. So Jesus Christ has died. What has he done? He's made clothing for us. He stitched it together with his own blood. And he's created what's called in Isaiah 61 a robe of righteousness. And he gives us a personal invitation and says, put it on. Put on that clothing and it will save you. It will be your righteous covering. And therefore, even though you do not have the righteousness to enter into my throne room, I have the righteousness for you. You must make a judgment on your present tense relationship with foreign fire. Right now, what's your relationship with it? According to the word of God, you can have nothing to do with it. You are in Christ Jesus. And in Christ Jesus, you become the temple of the most high God. You can have no foreign fire in this body. You make a judgment on that and say, no more. It's not allowed in. The function of purity means to stand in the gap, Ahmad Peretz. The word Ahmad means to stand immovable, to rise implacable, to position oneself to endure the harshest winds, to march forward and persist in the darkest hour, to keep swinging the sword and remain steadfast though all seems lost, to stand unflinching when the arrows fly, to plant your feet in the soil of danger and set your jaw for battle. Phineas, javelin, Ahmad. This is the word in the Hebrew. This is the word used to describe what an intercessor does, what a priest does in Israel. They stand Ahmad. And though the marshmallows come, though the bait may come, though the Midianitish women are attractive, it does not matter. You have the authority in this body because you have made a judgment on the word of God in text. You have made a judgment on the word of God in person. You have made a judgment on that cross. You have made a decision, a life-altering decision to say, that is my hope, that is my salvation. And as a result, because you are in Christ, you have his righteousness and he has brought you into the throne room of grace and he gives you grace for help in time of need. He hands you that javelin. He says, use it. Use it. Bring judgment on anything that would ever dare try and transgress this temple. Do not allow any foreign fires in. You are not a pushover. You are not a victim. You have the authority of Jesus Christ. Stand a mod. And the word is parats, the breach of vulnerability, a gap of exposure, a trink in the armor, the broken wall through which hell's minions fly. A mod parats. Stand firm, immovable in the gap. You must learn how to stand with Phineas's javelin in that gap in your own soul. The enemy knows those gaps. He's the one that's been working hard for all these years to create them. But you allow the king of kings to be the man without mixture. You get clothed in him and suddenly he becomes a wall about you. You have that javelin in hand and no more are you susceptible to what the enemy has up his sleeve. Ahmad Peretz, saints of God. You Ahmad Peretz to prove yourself a man in the harrowing gap, to stand immovable and implacable in the midst of the hazardous breach, to plant your feet in the way of peril in order to stop the onrush of hell's minions, to pull a Phineas. You have the authority that you need to be able to exert all that God did on that cross and in through Jesus Christ here in this body. Jesus Christ was a man without mixture. 
Now you are clothed in a man without mixture. And now that man without mixture, the very holy spirit of God, the unmixed spirit of God, lives within you to purge and to get out all that is of mixture and to keep it out so that you are not just the enemy's plaything anymore. Made strong, why? To fill the gap. Then stood up Phineas and executed judgment, and so the plague was stayed. Look at this scripture. I don't know if you've ever seen it before. 1 Timothy 5.22. Keep thyself pure. Keep thyself. And you're like, how am I supposed to do that? Didn't anyone ever tell you that you have Phineas's javelin? Didn't anyone ever acquaint you with the gospel? Didn't anyone ever tell you that you have the authority over this body? You were to put your body under. You are not to allow your body to control you. But according to the grace given you in the cross of Jesus Christ, you actually have position now to actually say no, no, no. To not have to be the enemy's plaything anymore. Keep thyself a man without any mixture, a man with drawn sword and ready to defend, a man with a jaw locked and determined to remain above reproach, a man that chooses his beloved king over all other possible worldly allurements. That's the Eric Amplified version of keep thyself pure. Let's pray. Father, keep us pure. Teach us, Lord, not just that there is a javelin, but how to grip it and how to wield it. That we would not be susceptible and marred by the enemy's agenda in our life. That these marshmallow enticements would not control our souls. But Lord, that our souls would be ruled by a sweeter song. That the siren coastline would not be our allurement, but the song of our Redeemer. The song that is eternal. The song of our beloved. That's what we heed today. We love you and we trust you. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to this message by Pastor Eric Ludy, pastor at the Church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Please feel free to make copies of this message but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without express written permission. If you have any questions, comments, or just need more information about Ellerslie, please visit our website at www.ellerslie.com. Again, that website is www.ellerslie.com. For Ellerslie Mission Society, this is Ben Zorns, cheering you on as Christ cultivates His set-apart life within you.